to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, or which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, uh, uh, am, oh, excuse me, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. In verse 4 of our text, the apostle voices a concern for this particular congregation that is repeated at least three other times in this chapter alone. And I would argue that what his concern is expressed here is really his concern for the church in general or his, uh, for this particular church because it deals with a particular issue and problem that they were prone towards. So as we look at the other three expressions or in verse 4, we'll begin in verse 4, and the essence of the concern or the warning is this, and I'll read it first from the ESV and then also from the King James. In the ESV it says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's the ESV translation. The King James reads this way, lest any man beguile you with enticing words. Lest any man beguile you with enticing words. Now the Greek word that, that the ESV translate as deludes and the King James translates as beguile basically means to trick into a hardship. To trick someone into a hardship. Now, this same thought, even though different words and different expressions are used, is repeated three more times in the second chapter of Colossians alone. In verse 8, we read, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You see, the use of the word deceit carries the same idea of being tricked. And that's the same idea that undergirds the thought of being deluded. Don't let anyone trick you or deceive you or don't let anyone delude you. In verse 16, it, we read, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one, and the idea is, again, is deceive you with that judgment. Don't let anyone judge you in any way. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And again, the same thought, even though different words are being used, but it's the same idea that when you are deceived by the particular deceit that Paul is concerned about, then people will judge you or put sort of uh, different judgments on you, and then they will say that you're disqualified from the faith based on this system 
of deceit that Paul is warning against in general. And again, the idea here, he goes on to say, don't let anyone disqualify you insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels, etc. Now, I would argue this. These four warnings, verse 4, verse 8, verse 16, and verse 18, these four warnings make up the core of Paul's concern for the congregation. And I would say that the summary of it, even though he doesn't use the same terms of, as deceit, but the summary of his concern, his core concerns for this particular congregation is found in verse 23 at the end of chapter 2. In verse 23, at the very end of, um, or at the end of that discussion, yeah, at the very end of, of the chapter, Paul says this. Um, he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that's his summary on those four warnings. And it's not just found here in chapter 2, but that really makes up the bulk of chapter 3 as well. And so this is Paul's concern, that, that these, this congregation was vulnerable to being deceived in a particular type of deceit. Now, with that with that in mind, what I want to do before we return to our text in verses 1 through 4 is make three observations about Paul's expressed concerns. Three observations or three conclusions that we can extract from Paul's repeated concern. Number one, the aim or the intention or desire of the Colossian Christians was to be more effective in their fight against remaining sin. The aim, the desire, the intention of the Colossian congregation was that they wanted to be more effective in their fight against the flesh or remaining sin. That's why Paul says, they are, that's why they're, they're captive. They, they, are, they are in a good place. They, they want to fight against the flesh. Now, how many of us recognize that struggle, that we want to be spiritually stronger? That would be a good way to put it. They wanted to be spiritually stronger. Here's the second observation. The things that Paul warns them against were being offered to them with good intentions, and they seem to make sense. The things that Paul warns against, going back to verse 4 about being deluded, and even when he says, don't let anyone deceive you, those things that he is warning against who have the end result of deception were offered with good intentions. They, didn't, they weren't trying to mislead. They weren't trying to, they, they were trying to, these formulas were given as a means of helping the Colossians achieve their desired goal. And their desired goal was to be more effective in their fight against remaining sin. 
So these bad suggestions came from a good place. The, the Colossians were trying to be more holy, to put it in a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell. They were trying to fight against the flesh. They were trying to be more effective in dealing with the fact of remaining sin. And what was being offered to them, everything from the worship of angels to observing feast days, were coming from a good intention. The intention was not to mislead. The intention was to assist the Colossians in being what they wanted to be, which was more spiritually mature so that they could fight against remaining sin. But here's the third observation. Paul's conclusion is that these things actually have the opposite effect rather than the desired intention. So no matter how good the intention is, Paul's, Paul's conclusion is that these things have the opposite effect of, their, of, of what they are intended for or their intended aim. And the reason for that is because these things lead them away from Christ rather than towards him. They lead these, these formulas, these whatever it is, the foods, the, the, the fastings, all of these things lead them away from the finished work of Christ. And instead, it leads them back to self. Therefore, I would argue that in our text, what Paul presents, and I say this for a lack of a better term, Paul presents a better formula for spiritual growth. And this better formula for spiritual growth is antithetical. It's the opposite of what we naturally think spiritual growth is about. So Paul, what, what Paul does, he tells them, I understand what your aim is. Your aim is, is to fight against the indulgences of the flesh. And these things that have been given to you have been given with the intention of helping you to fight against remaining sin. But as, as, as enticing as they are, they are of no benefit they do the exact opposite. And so that's why he's warning, and I would argue, therefore, in our text, what Paul gives is a better formula for dealing with the fact of remaining sin. And one of the reasons that I want to address this this morning is because this is, this is only the second Sunday of a new year. And many of us have made res resolutions and some of us have made resolutions of a spiritual nature. In other words, we've, we, we've, and we've done this for a couple of reasons. Some have, have made spiritually informed resolutions because you think that you hit a flat spot last year and because you think that it's because you have neglected some things that you need to not neglect. And some have just said, well, you know what, I just need to do better. And so your resolutions, your spiritual resolutions to do better, to be more, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank. 
it, it might be unintended, it might be more like the formulas that Paul is warning against than that which is the source of true spiritual growth. And so what I want to do is look at four things that Paul presents as an antithetical formula for spiritual growth. And the first thing to note is this. Spiritual growth is an individual pursuit, but it's, con it's, it's contextualized by, number one, it's, connect it's cont uh, contextualized by a connection to the body of truth. Spiritual growth is an individual pursuit, but it is contextualized first by your connection to a body of truth. In other words, there is no, the, the body of truth, and we addressed this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning, but let's just turn there for a moment. 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle says this concerning fellowship and in terms of what we believe. In 1 John chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, referring to the person and work of Christ, was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we and, uh, and proclaim to you uh, eternal life, which was uh, with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that, your, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Christian growth, our spiritual growth, is a matter of an individual pursuit, but that pursuit begins with a connection to a body of truth. You are not a Christian on your own terms. And we do know there's an increasing number of people who think they can be Christian on their own terms. This is why we begin our worship services with a confession of what we believe. Now, you can mouth the words and not believe them. But it's no way you can be in fellowship without believing them. You may not say them, or even if you say them, if you don't believe them, but you cannot be in fellowship with God the Father apart from the truth that he has revealed to us about his son. You might be a more moral person by going to whatever church you go to. You may be better to get along with than you used to. You may be less reckless than you used to, but it doesn't make you Christian. What makes us Christian is what the writer of Jude says, the truth that was once delivered to all of the saints. So therefore, spiritual growth is a matter of an individual pursuit, but that pursuit is contextualized by a connection to a body of truth. Who is it that, that we have fellowship with? We have fellowship with those who are in fellowship with the triune God. 
So spiritual growth, it begins with your connection. It doesn't begin with an internal experience. It doesn't begin with a voice. It doesn't begin with a vision. Spiritual growth and spiritual, spiritual, the pursuit of spiritual growth doesn't begin internally in other than connecting you to a body of truth. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? The history book tells us that he lived. What do you believe about him? Do you believe that he is the only begotten son of God? Do you believe that he was everything that God has required of you? Do you believe that he lived for your righteousness? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he physically was buried? You can say, well, I can believe in God. I just don't believe that people rise from the dead. Then whatever else you are, you are not a Christian. If you do not believe that Jesus physically died and was bodily raised, you may be a lot of things and Christian is not one of them. Do you believe that he was received at the right hand of the Father? And do you believe that you are justified by his scars? Do you believe that he sat down because the work of your salvation has been complete. Christian growth begins with the connection to that body of truth. And what we'll see is that we grow in our grasp of that truth. So when he says that we are, we are, are being knit together, we are first knit together in a common body of truth. But those who are connected to the body of truth are also connected to individual believers. Yes, spiritual maturity, spiritual growth is a matter of individual pursuit, but it is contextualized by the individual being connected to truth outside of themselves. And it is further contextualized by individuals who are bound by the same truth connected in the covenant community. In other words, brothers and sisters, we've often heard this. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And there is no such thing as maturing in the faith by sitting alone. No, we, we, we may have good information but our information makes more sense as we are connected to the body. And so whatever else we are to the world, we are connected in community by our commitment and connection to that body of truth. So again, if you look at what Paul says here in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 2, he says that their hearts... And by the way, he's addressing a congregation that it seems as if, as in the case with the church of Laodicea, that he had not ministered to them face to face. 
And so he says that in the same way he yearns for them. And then in verse 2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Knit together in truth and knit together in fellowship. The degree and the depths of our growth is connected to those things, our grasp of the truth and our commitment within the body. Brothers and sisters, we're not weightlifters. We're not spiritual weightlifters who just look in the mirror to see how, much, how, you know, how, how cut up we are. Our strength is not measured by us looking in a mirror. Our strength and our maturity is measured by the degree to which we are committed to the body that we have been called to as we are connected to the body of truth. And so the first thing that we see is that spiritual growth is an individual pursuit, but it's contextualized by our connection to a body of truth and by our commitment or connected in a bond of love within the context of the covenant community. A good cross-reference verse here, of course, is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. If you want to measure your, spirit, your spiritual growth, look at what, what the writer of Hebrews says. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love. Let me just pause there for a moment. Let us consider, and almost what he's saying is, is have a strategy session of how you can help someone. When you encounter a problem within the church, when you encounter a difficult personality, when you have a point of conflict, what, what, do, we, what do we consult about? Do we consult about how to win the point? Or do we consult about how we can stir this brother or sister up to love and good works? That's what spiritual growth is about. He says spiritual maturity is about how you grow within the garden that has been planted by God's grace. So he says, let us consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but instead, he says, encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. So spiritual growth, even though it's an individual pursuit, it is contextualized by our common commitment to a common body of truth and our connection to the covenant community. Secondly, secondly spiritual growth is a matter of growing in knowledge or growing in our knowledge and understanding of God as he has revealed himself in Christ. Spiritual growth is a matter of growing in our knowledge and understanding of God as he has revealed himself in Christ. Not some esoteric, weird kind of God spoke to me on Thursday morning and told me something kind of way, but connecting our knowledge of God to what he has clearly revealed to us in Christ. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, the mystery of God I understand as that in which God is revealed. By this phrase, the apostle means that God cannot be known otherwise than in Christ. 
all who think they know anything of God apart from Christ invent for themselves an idol in the place of God. Just as on the other hand, that a person who is ignorant of Christ is not led by him to the Father and does not in Christ embrace God wholly. In other words, what Calvin is saying here is that we, when we talk about mystery, we, everyone wants a word of knowledge. And God has given us the final word of knowledge in the person of Christ. And so therefore, you can pray all you want. You can have the lights dimmed. You can have candles lit. But God is not going to fill out your grocery shopping list. God is not going to name the person you should marry. God is not going to fill out your job resume, and God is not going to... No, you can do all of those other things. What he has revealed, he has revealed through his son, and our grasp of his son is our growth in a knowledge of who and what God is. And we do have a lot of idols. There's no shame in admitting it. In fact, it's growth. It's growth to recognize that the things that I used to depend on for a word from the Lord, I didn't really get a word from the Lord. I remember years ago, James Boyce came to Southern California and he was doing a series of events in uh, support of his radio ministry. And we had him for Cure, Christians United Reformation for Reformation. We had him do a, a, an evening with us. And he just kind of spoke to our students who came to our various academies. And he talked about discovering the will of God. And, and, and I love the way he began. He says, to, to know the will of God, it's, it's a, it's a, it can be a nebulous thing if we start in the wrong place. And so he went on to mention that God is not going to tell us who to marry. He, God is not going to write that name down and send it to you by pigeon carrier or anything else. But he did say this. He says, but God has revealed what we should look for in a spouse. He talks about being equally yoked. So whatever else, wherever else we shop for a spouse, let's begin there. Here's one of the problems that we have as Christians we begin somewhere else. We begin, we will overlook, and I've had many people over the years say, I, I wish I was more mature in my faith. I love my spouse to death, but I wish that I was more mature in my faith when I chose a spouse because I went against the grain. God is gracious because marriage is of, of, of common grace. It's not, it's not a redemptive thing. But when we, who are, when we are, are, are in the Lord, we are told that we must, we must seek, you know, to walk, or if we're going to walk with someone, to, to not be unequally yoked. Does not say that he will curse that union. Doesn't say that. He'll bless the union because marriage is honorable. But have you ever seen a yoke? And what it means, it's, it's that thing you put on the shoulders of animals. So if one shoulders are down here and the other one's shoulders are up there, the yoke is still on. It just looks weird. It ain't going to accomplish what, you're, what it's intended to accomplish. What James Boyce says is, no, God is not going to tell you who to marry. 
but he gives you a field that you should shop from. And I don't know how many times I've had people come and, and they say, well, I want to get married. And okay, do, where do, you, where, do they believe what you believe? Well, they're a believer. And then sometimes what they mean is they are Jewish. And it's not to say that we should not love Jewish people. But if you're in Christ, then you shouldn't marry someone who's not in Christ. We'll say, well, they're Muslim. They, they're good Muslim. That's cute. But they shouldn't, you shouldn't be married to them. You see, God is not going to tell us who to marry, but he's given us enough information about who we shouldn't marry. In the same way, God is not going to tell you what job to take. You don't just lay in bed and say, Lord, where should I go to work? Well, let's begin with what you can do. God has not called you to be a heart surgeon, A, if you've not gone to medical school, and B, if you don't like the sight of blood, and you don't like, you're not a doctor in any way. God has not called you to be that. And you say, well, I'm just going to trust the Spirit. You can. You can trust the Spirit, but God is not calling you to do something that he's not qualified you to do. Brothers and sisters, how do we know, how do we discover the will of God? Now, that's in a generic way. How about in a spiritual way? Is it God's will for me to reconcile with so-and-so? Look at his word. You don't need him to get in your face and tell you to not talk about someone. You don't need him to send a Holy Spirit. He doesn't need to show up and say, oh, by the way, you need to stop gossiping. No. Discover the truth that of God that is revealed in his son. And what that does is it gives us a different lens through which we view others. Uh, who was it? Uh, one of our brothers, when we had the Cambridge Summit, Gene Veith, a Lutheran brother, was giving a paper at the, at the summit and talking about this very thing about God's word and being led by God's word as it is revealed in Christ. And he talked about a young lady who was in college, and as she was in college, she became a believer. And as, and as such, she, was, she had an issue with her parents, and she was, you know, she needed, there was, there was a, a rift between her and her parents. And so the person that was discipling her was telling her she needs to be reconciled with her parents and, and, and really have a different disposition towards her parents. And she put it this way, well, if the Lord wants me to do it, then he'll let me know. And they were saying, he did. <laughs> he did let you know. And brothers and sisters, sometimes in pursuit of God's secret will, because we all, we all want to be let in on a secret, we overlook what he has openly revealed to us in his son. And the point that Calvin is making 
is that if we look somewhere else other than the person of Christ for the revelation of God, then we can't say that we are being led by Christ. And we can't be led wholly to trust upon the Father or embrace the Father if we have rejected what he has revealed in his Son. And what is revealed in Christ is everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Here's what spiritual growth does consist in. It doesn't consist in something that is secret. It, it, it exists in growing in our understanding of God's will as it is revealed in the person of his son. In our interpersonal relationships, in our, in our inner church dealings, as, the, as we grow in our grasp of what God has revealed for us in his son, that is spiritual growth. You can't flex your muscles on it. It is spiritual growth. Here's the third thing. Spiritual growth corresponds to a growth in assurance in the finished work of Christ. Spiritual growth corresponds to a growth in assurance in the finished work of Christ. In other words, here's what it means to grow in the knowledge of God as it is revealed, the mystery of God as it, as it is revealed in Christ. As we grow in what God has given us, then we grow in what Christ has accomplished for us. We grow in the knowledge of what Christ has accomplished. And as we grow in what Christ has accomplished for us, then what that means is that we discover, and it's a humbling thing, when we discover that our spiritual exercises don't put us closer to God. And you see, when we don't get that, that's what makes uh, these arguments that Paul says in verse 4, that's what makes those arguments seem plausible. In other words, if God has required of us certain things, if God has, or if we feel that we have somehow uh, grown distant from God, it seems to make sense to us that we must redo, revisit certain things. It seems like, you know what, when I use, and we'll, we'll do the A, B, C sort of thing, I used to fast at least three times a week. I haven't fasted in six years, and that's probably why I don't feel the strength that I should. And so I'm going to start fasting. And so what we end up doing is we trust these things more than the finished work of Christ. So we look for assurance based on those, on the things that can be accomplished externally by us rather than assurance based on what is the finished work of Christ. You know how much Christ has done for our salvation? Everything. You know what's left for us to do for our salvation? Nothing. In John chapter 6, when the multitude came to Jesus to make him king by force, and they recognized because he had fed the multitudes with the bread. And they said, well, you must be the one because Moses fed our father's manna in the wilderness. And the scripture says when he comes that he will feed us again. You fed us, you must be our king. 
And Jesus says, why are you laboring for that which, you know, which perishes? But when the Messiah comes, here is the, the will of God. Here is the, here is the will of God. The one who would do the work of the, the, of, of, of the will of God. You know what that means? It means to believe in the one that he has sent. They said, what work do we do? What work do, we do? And we'll do it. And here's the work that he says you must do. Believe in the one that he has sent. Now, let's say you, you have made a resolution this year because you realize your shortcomings in years gone by. And so it makes sense to you that if you do this, then God will do the other. Guard your quiet time. Make sure you have your fasting done. Keep a Christian journal. You are convinced that doing these things somehow will put you back in a good position with God. You are convinced that these things, that if you just do them, then God will honor them because as James says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And so we have convinced ourselves that somehow doing these things will foster more assurance. But no, here's, it's the other way around. What deepens our our, our growth, what deepens our assurance is to rest in the finished work of Christ. And brothers and sisters, do you know when that resonates with us? When we are sinners and we have been awakened to our sinful condition and we are awakened to the condemnation of a holy God and then we are told he's done it all. Isn't that good news? Then, of course, in the midst of our struggles, when we come back, wake ourselves up like the, like the prodigal son, when we wake up and find ourselves in a pig's pen, when we've made a mess out of everything that God has graciously given us, you know what he says? When we offer, when we come back to him with an application for day labor work, he says, no. You're still my child. It is the finished work of Christ that applies to us when we come back from the far country. It is still the finished work of Christ that gives us assurance, not stuff we can do for him. And brothers and sisters, when we reach, when we see ourselves coming closer to the finish line than we were at the starting line, because the starting line is faded in the background, and the only thing that we can see before us is the yellow tape of the finish line. And we start wondering, I hope I've done enough. I hope my house is in order. Brothers and sisters, the house that is in order is Christ. Because didn't he say, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's in order. And our assurance at the beginning of our Christian walk, our assurance as we come back from the, the far country, and our assurance as the finishing line is before us, is that Jesus has lived for my righteousness and he's died for my sins. And that the Father's pleasure which, is, which was upon him is upon me.
Assurance does not come from our works. Assurance comes from our confidence in the work of Christ. But here's a fourth and final thing that we'll look at, and that is, therefore, in light of these three things, in light of the fact that our spiritual growth corresponds to our growth in assurance as we rest in the finished work of Christ, as we recognize that the mystery of God is, is, is revealed to us in Christ and there are no more secrets, God doesn't need to whisper in our ears. He screamed to us in the person of Christ. In light of the fact that our individual pursuit is connected to, as it is, it is contextualized by our being connected to a body of truth and a body of believers. Therefore, if spiritual growth is part of your resolution for this year, then here's my exhortation to you. If it is your desire to be more for the Lord, if it is your desire to fight a stronger battle against remaining sin, Here's my admonition to you. Don't look at you and don't look at your scorecard. Do not look to fasting. Do not look to quiet times. Do not look to your small group. Do not look to your activity. But brothers and sisters, if you want to be more on fire for the Lord this year, then look unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. See in his seated posture that the work is done and see in his wide open wounds that the price has been accepted. Look unto Jesus because it is only in him that we have an incentive to give our lives as a thanks offering to God because he has accepted the life and blood of his son as our sin offering. Look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. If you struggle with this, if you struggle with that, if you look unto Jesus and look at your greatest enticement against the beauty of a wounded Savior. These arguments make sense. These plans, these formulas make sense. And that's the whole point of the gospel. The gospel doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a thrice holy God would look on someone like us and receive us as we are unless we make some improvements. It doesn't make sense. But he calls us. He saw us when we were messed up, loved us when we were messed up, and sent his son because we were messed up. If you want to grow in zeal for the Lord, don't look at your work. Look at his work and look at his wounds. And it is only then that we will be able to see how foolish all of these other formulas really are. Amen.